0: Welcome to NBA Hangtime. My name is Sean Bartley, and over the last eight months, I've produced this podcast alongside Sekou Smith. After we saw the outpouring of love from the NBA community following Sekou's passing, our production team knew this platform would be the perfect place to celebrate the life of our friend and brother. Over the next week, you'll hear conversations between media members who worked alongside Sekou, or mentored by Sekou, as well as a collection of memories, stories, and thoughts from his friends around the league. First, we welcome in NBA.com's John Schumann and the Boston Globes' Gary Washburn. Appreciate you guys hopping on this podcast for us today. Sure thing. Anything for Seku? Absolutely. So first, I just want to start off with a simple question of when was the first time you met Seku, and what was that experience like?
1: For me, I'm not sure if this was the first time I met him, but um, my earliest memory and distinct memory of him was during the 2008-09 season and I started going to a lot lot more games Um, and so I, I went to a lot of games in Philly and Gary you know this in Philly you know the visitors coach will usually speak before the game in this little hallway between the visitors locker room and the coach's room which is basically another locker room and so I went down there. I looked it up. It was a game in March where the Hawks were in Philly. And Sekou was the um, Hawks beat writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution at the time. And I was sort of waiting in that little hallway for Mike Woodson, the Hawks coach, to come speak to the media. And I realized I'm just sort of standing there alone. And this was before there was like a, a specific time when each coach would, would speak. I'm sitting there alone. There's no beat writer around. And I'm a little confused as to why Woodson hadn't come out of the coach's office to speak. And then Arthur Trish comes out of one of the two rooms, I forget. And I forget even what we said to each other, but he realized I wanted to talk to, to Woody, and he led me into the coach's room. And so Arthur leads me into the, the coach's room, which is just a locker room. And in Philly, it's those you know sort of big cubby-style wooden lockers, and sitting there in the coaches' room is Mike Woodson and his assistants, and like right in the middle of them, just sort of BSing and and chopping it up is Seku, just sitting there with the coaches before the game. I thought it was like crazy that their beat writer is is sort of hanging out with all the whole coaching staff before the game, just BSing about whatever. So and it speaks to who Seku is, I guess. Arthur led me over to, to Woody. I asked him some questions. Seku sort of slid over and put his recorder in and was was listening uh, as well. It's kind of blew my mind. I, I always remember it, and we, we've had this, we've talked about it plenty of times afterward how it was kind of strange that Seiku was just hanging out with the coaches before the game, but I think that's who he was. I mean, he was just sort of, you know, you would never see that with any other beat writer coach relationship or I had never seen it before or never seen it since. And gosh, when Woody was with the Knicks, like there was no talking to him outside of the press conference. But I think that just speaks to who Seku is. He was just so uh, disarming, I think, and, and engaging with people that he could have that relationship with the coaches. And they trusted him. You no, know, just to hang out in their locker room before the game and not worry about what they said or anything. You know, that they trusted him as a writer and, and as a beat writer. You know, after that, I think I, I distinctly remember walking back during the 2009 conference finals, Magic Cavs, he was there covering it. And I distinctly remember walking back from the arena to the Renaissance Hotel in Cleveland. I don't remember what we talked about, but I just remember having a conversation with him there, having not really known him too well. And just remembering, it was like a warm conversation between two people didn't really know each other well, but we walked this 15-minute walk back to the hotel and had a great conversation. And then a few months later, he joined us at NBA.com, and I was really happy about it. And he reached out to me, and, and we were connected at the hip since then. What about you,
0: Gary? It
2: was probably when he covered the Hawks in uh, for AJC, and I was covering the Sonics for the Seattle P.I., And you would go to Atlanta, and he'd always have that booming voice in the press box. And you would just hear him kind of holding court, and you kind of knew it was his town. You know, Atlanta was like his beat. I mean, the Hawks were his beat. Atlanta was his town. We got to the point where we joked about – because the Hawks were really bad when when he covered them. They were like a really terrible team. We would always joke with him how – uh, he would get this "quote unquote" Sekou Smith suite at the NBA draft lottery because the Hawks are always in the draft lottery. So when any of us who covered the league would have to go to the lottery, we'd be like, "Man, I'm trying to get that Sekou Smith suite <laughs> or whatever." And he would just start laughing because he was kind of associated with just you know, like we would, you know, like, "Man, I'm sorry, Sekou, you're covering like just such bad teams." And in, in, in those days, you know, the Hawks were. You know, I think they had taken Marvin Williams over Chris Paul and they took Sheldon Williams. And it, it was just not a good time, um, good times for the Hawks. You know, they eventually kind of rebounded in the 2000s, you know, when they revived, you know, and took Horford and all those guys. But I just remember kind of like Sickle being that cynical, like, beat writer, understanding that the Hawks were not going to win on most nights. When you cover bad teams, and I'll cover my share of bad teams – you just go to the arena, like, they're going to lose. And even if they're up 10 with three minutes left, they're probably going to lose. You know, like, they're going to find a way to blow this. And I think that it was funny because Seiko just had the attitude, like, you know, this is the Hawks. You know how the Hawks do. Yeah, we know how the Hawks do. So, yeah, so was my earliest memory, just kind of um, being just like Kim, kind of owning the city, you know, his loud, booming voice in the press box, joking – you know, whereas, like, you just couldn't help but want to get to know him because he was so friendly and it was kind of like, Welcome to my town. I think John can attest this when you go to certain cities, there are certain riders who are like, Make sure you they greet you and they make sure, like, Hey, welcome to our city, press spot. You know, Seku is one of those guys who always say, Hey, how you doing? You know, some guys in certain cities just always make sure to say, What's up to the visiting riders as if, like, because you're you know it's their home base, and Sekou was always one of those guys uh, that made you feel welcome.
1: It's funny we used to joke because we, in when we were with the NBA, we worked in that Secaucus building where they had the lottery all those years. And we used to joke that Elgin Baylor had a parking spot there, right? <laughs>
2: <laughs> exactly. Like there were certain people, obviously over the years that. And St. Cool was a, a constant at the draft line. We, who was that? We'd ask, what was that like? You know, because Atlanta would always have like a top five. It wasn't even like they were like 11th or something. Yeah. Like the Hawks would have a top five pick, top three pick. And, and it was always, you know, I said the one year they took Marvin Williams and it was just like, uh-oh.
1: But he owned that beat, though. Like no matter, even if they were bad, he owned that beat. Because I, I, I was just thinking about this now. I remember wanting to read him. Like he had a, he had a blog on on the AJC website. This was must have been 2007, 2008, um, where he, he gave you a little bit more than he was giving you in his, in his newspaper stories. And I wanted to read that stuff because he was really good. He owned that beat and he knew everything that was going on. And even though the Hawks were not good, and I was trying to keep a track of the 30 teams, especially the ones that are good, I read his blog all the time and look forward to reading it because of the way he wrote and because of the way uh, of the, ac- uh, because of the access that he was able to get with that team.
2: Yeah. I think also to, uh, you know, Art, Arthur Trish is a, a big time, first-class PR guy for the Hawks. And uh, they became obviously very, very close friend, very close to the end uh, through those Hawks days. And, and I think the Hawks were an organization, and, and Sekou understood that. They understood where they were. Like they were not, uh, they were they were struggling. They were trying to come back, and I think that the, the comfort level, like you know, it was just a comfort level in the organization. And Sekou was just one of those guys that, like, you were you want him. To, you want to talk basketball with him. I, you know, Woody, want you wanted to take Sekou in your office. You wanted him. He wanted him around, and I, I could totally understand that because it, he was kind of like he, he covered the team, but he was fair. He was tough, so it wasn't like he was taking unnecessary shots at the Hawks. He, they understood, hey, we're bad. You're going to have to write things that are not so good, and you're going to have to write a lot of losing game stories, but I think that he kind of set it a standard, an example, for how to cover a team that's struggling. You cover them fairly you tell the truth, but you also write about some of the good things that happen in the organization too. And I think that's what Sekou did, obviously until, uh, he went to NBA.com and he completely blew up. I just remember like during the finals, one of the Cleveland golden state finals, I mean, obviously there's three of them and we're at Oracle and we literally went to, went to go get something to eat. And I mean, it was like walking with, uh, drake or you know bruno mars i mean it was like people were stopping him hey i say, cool slant and i was like man i didn't know he was that big you know i, I mean big tv star and doing great but my goodness he was quite popular uh amongst the nba fans so we walked the lobby and i mean i had to keep going and go, going to concession stand because he just kept getting stopped um <laughs> And I just remember that. I was like, wow, I didn't really know. Like, all these guys like, love NBA TV. they were like, yeah, he he was a magnet for the attention when we would like, you know, especially during the finals, all-star, we were out in the streets or whatever um, during those times.
1: I witnessed the same exact thing. We, we walked to and from dinner countless of times and to and from the arena countless times at all-star and at the finals. And those people would come up, you know, Hey, say Coop Smith. And he, if he wasn't in a rush or anything, he'd be engaging with them. You know, he wouldn't mind asking him, Hey, who's your favorite team or what do you think of the, you know, he wouldn't mind asking their opinion about their favorite team or whatever. So he was great like that with everybody. And it's just amazing, you know, since he passed and you read all the tributes and you hear the tributes. And the one thing that I keep asking myself is how did he have time for everybody that he mentored and influenced and just was a friend to like, I mean, we were really close. I thought we were really close, you know, where we text each other almost every day and call, talk to each other on the phone once or twice a week. And if I called him and he didn't pick up, he'd call me back within 15 minutes. And then I realized like, he must've been doing this for like (laughs) dozens and dozens of people. He had this sort of a similar relationship because for everybody, he was like a brother and it's amazing how much time he had for people and the willingness to engage with everybody. Um, I I mean, I wrote this at the, uh, you know, when he passed is, is we got along from the jump. And I think that's mostly because he just gets along with everybody from the jump. You know, there are some people that are just really, really special. And he was one of those dudes.
0: What was something whether on the, like, you guys mentioned uh, his blog and like his writing style, What was something that he taught you as a writer or maybe just taught you something, you know, as you were coming up in the ranks?
1: That's a good question. You know, me and him looked at the game very differently. You know, I'm an analytics guy, you know, really focused on the numbers and also X's and O's. He's more about the personalities and the paths that players take, especially um from AAU to 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 the NBA, you know, he would always tell me, Oh, this guy was huge. And, and like I, I I didn't know players until they got to the NBA. But he knew like the whole path um, that they came on. But we would have great conversations, even though we came from two totally different directions. And that says a lot about him too. Like he would accept he was open minded to what I was saying and then he had a totally different perspective. But I think he he helped me appreciate Players for their strengths. You know, you can always look at Russell Westbrook, say, with a with a critical eye, right? But I think he taught me to to also just appreciate Russell Westbrook for who he is, and and those types of players for who they are, and just how hard they play. And and you know, I'm always going to be like, well, he's not very efficient, but you know, you could still appreciating him for the skills and and his his style of play as much as you know, how efficient he is and how he affects winning and losing.
2: Yeah, I always kind of took from uh, Sekou the way you cover, like as I said earlier, like I think that we get so caught up in wins and losses as as like sports writers, beat writers, you know, the winning teams get all the attention, the losing teams get all the negative attention and the social media criticism or whatever. So when you cover a team that's bad, okay, or they're struggling, rebuilding, however you want to use the terminology, it's easy to let go of the rope and just sort of like kind of not cover them thoroughly because you don't think anyone cares. I covered uh, years, my first beat was the 96-97 Clippers, a team that ended up making a playoffs with 36 wins. And I remember like my enthusiasm was great for it because it was my first beat or whatever. But, and people were like, who cares, it's the Clippers. And I just think that, I mean, that was the sports arena day. So, yeah, there was a lot of people that didn't care. But I think, say, Ku covered the Hawks, you know, like people cared. Even though it's it's the Hawks, who cares? They're not even the number one team. You know, you know, no one cares about them in Atlanta. What do you like? It's easy to take that mentality and internalize it and let go of the rope or cover them like, uh, here we go again, they're going to lose. But he had an enthusiasm and a vigor to cover that team the way it was supposed to be covered and I think that they even though they're a bad team and bad teams deserve great coverage also um and to be honest from personal experience bad teams are more dramatic so they they're they're more enjoyable to cover in many senses because they always got teammates who don't like each other there's arguments in the locker room there's all types of stuff going on with bad teams that good teams might not have I think say cool What I learned from him was just kind of like the passion of covering a team the way you're supposed to cover it. There are Hawks fans out there in Atlanta and and everywhere. You know, they might not be plentiful as the Lakers or the Heat or even the Knicks, but they're Hawk fans. And I think Sekou wrote to those fans. He gave them the best coverage. And I think that's like being, that was a pro. That's why he made it as big as he did is because he was a complete pro about his craft. And people noticed that. And that's something I noticed.
1: Yeah. I mean, it goes to relationships also, obviously, you know, he had, he had relationships all over that organization, but then even when he became a national writer and, and, and television guy, he still had relationships all over the league. And like, you'd see it, like I would travel with him, you know, or be with finals and he'd still know everybody on or he would still know a bunch of people on other teams that he never covered personally, really. Um, or he, he would cover a playoff series. And he, over the course of that playoff series, he would somehow, you know, develop three or four really good contacts within a team that he hadn't been hadn't covered all year. And he, he's just had, you know, that special way about him where he could connect with somebody real quickly and then earn their trust really
0: quickly, just as important. Gary, you brought up like the Sekou Smith suite and like kind of those, those funny times. What were, you know, if you have another one, what were some of those funniest moments that you guys had with Sekou?
2: Oh, wow. Well, he was just like the cynical uncle that you had, but he was like around your age. So he had that real like curmudgeon kind of like he had like a lot of Bernie Mac, you know, Bernie Mac show about his kids. Like he had that cynical, like, you know, he loved his kids, but he was like he was that guy that just, you know, he was he would just vent about like his life and he would just be funny because he was that old school, uh, I think I wrote this, uh, he's like that old school dad and he was like the dad that we we grew up with or whatever that was just like, there's a very old schoolish uh, element to Say cool that he could, I mean, look at the young people to just shake his head. Oh, I don't understand, I don't understand my kid. He just had a uh, real timing for jokes and just to say the right thing at the right time. Some people try to joke and sometimes it doesn't always work, but his always seemed to work. Um, and in, in the bubble is where I really, you know, it's really sad because I said, like, that was a time I really extensively got to spend time with Sekou on a day-to-day basis for that month, uh, month and a half that he was there. And we spent together and it was just a good thing to know and just hear, hear him talk about his family, hear him talk about, uh, you know, living in Atlanta, hear him talk about just everyday life things. It was always a level of comedy to it, but it was always a level of real truth and cynicism And I always just thought, like, wow, it's like you're like the uncle that we had, like kind of reincarnated. That uncle that was always a straight shooter, that would always tell you the truth, uh, but was always really funny. That was some of the funny things. It's just. He loved his family, but he, you know, he knew like it was a different generation. And so some of the things he's like, I just don't get some of my, what my kids do. I don't, I'm trying to understand. I'm, help me, please. You know, And like, hey, I don't get it either. I don't get, you know, the, some of the things the players would do, these millennial players, and we would just shake our head like, eh, why do they do that? Why do they act like that? Why are they on social media? Like we would, you know, I was like, say, like, cool, I'm with you. I do not know. Like, I'm still trying to understand some of these guys and gals make,
1: One of the funniest days of my life was this pickup basketball game in Orlando All-Star, and my friend Lang Whitaker told the story in his um, tribute to Sekou where Jadakiss hit a game winner over Sekou to end this pickup game, and then Jadakiss sort of walked to the sideline and did the Tebow-Neal thing. I guess this was a long, long time ago, so this was when the Tebow thing was – Big. And, and so Lang and I were driving back to the hotel from this pickup game, and it was a long drive, and we stopped to get some to eat. And we were just giving Seku the heart, like a, a really hard time about Jada Kiss. <laughs> hitting the game winner on him and doing a T bow on him. Like the whole time basically we were doing the, the Jada kiss like cackle, you know, the I'm not gonna do it here. You know, you know, you know what it you know it. it is. I think Seiko was driving and we were basically doing the Jada Kiss cackle in his ear for 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 the whole drive back and it was hilarious. And amazingly like several years later, like he passed Jada Kiss in the Atlanta airport. And Jadakiss like went straight up to him and like, and he remembered him. And I, I and I, I, I thought that was hilarious, but I thought it just like speaks to who Seku was just like how people remember him, even though, you know, that's Jadakiss. I remember one time during the Cleveland finals, uh, and there were four years of Cleveland uh, golden state. Um, we had a favorite restaurant. I remember Lang found it. It's this Vietnamese restaurant. Um, in Cleveland, it was near the Sheridan. We ate there basically almost every day we were in Cleveland for four years. But there was a barber shop and Seiku always had to get his hair cut during the finals. Like if, if we're on the road for the finals for two weeks, like Sekou had to get his hair cut at least twice. Like that was a, a thing he had to do. His hair had to be straight. So there's this barber right next to the Vietnamese restaurant. And so he was going over there a half hour early or whatever before we were gonna eat. And I was gonna meet him at the restaurant. And so I get there and he's still not there. I go over to the barber and he's sitting there in the chair. And like you could say he was this curmudgeon, right? But he wouldn't necessarily let people know who, if, if he was upset at somebody, he wouldn't let that person know, right? So like like the waiter may say something and, and the waiter walks away and then he'll, he'll talk trash about the waiter at a restaurant. But we're so he's sitting here in this barber's thing, and this guy is taking forever. I mean, how long it, it, it took like an hour to cut his hair, and he had short hair, like you don't need an hour to do a, a quick trim and a and a shape up. So he's sitting there, I'm looking at my watch, like purposely, like looking at my watch. He's sitting there in the chair, the barber's behind him, and he's just like rolling his eyes, and I'm laughing because like you know, I know like he's just going crazy about how long this dude is is taking to cut his hair. Were either of you able to meet his family at all? In LA All-Star, my kids went out and we all had breakfast with uh, Seku and Heather uh, one of those days. And I'm, I'm so so thankful to know that my kids got to meet him. The first time he met them, he treated them like he was their uncle and like he was just you know, big hugs and, and, and just like gave him a little hard time type of thing. And I also met his, a couple of his sisters, you know, his family was so important to him and his family was great and he loved his family. And so it was, it was cool to just be able to hang out with him in that family environment and see where he comes from and also how much he cared about that group. And like I said, I'm, I'm so thankful that my wife and kids got to meet him and his wife and enjoy, you know his presence and understand how special
0: he was and how important he was to me. What was so special about the way that Seku viewed family?
1: In his memorial service, they talked about this. He, he, he organized like their family reunions. And this is not just like a family of him and his sisters and his brother. I mean, like all the extended family, like his, you know, all his cousins and second cousins. And, and I mean, he talked to his dad twice a day i think when we were on the road like it's it's amazing how often he was keeping in touch with his dad when he was absolutely devastated when his when his mother passed away and so i just know how close he was to both of his parents and how special he counted those i mean you could just see it in how much time he spent keeping in contact with his family when we were on the road and how important what like i said it was to have them meet him on the road when he had that
2: opportunity I don't think this job is conducive for for like having a wife and kids. And so I think all of us, a lot of us always admire Sekou for basically having a happy family life and having kids and raising them because this is a lot of travel, John. I mean, it's a lot of travel, a lot of being away from home. And, you know, let's be honest, FaceTime hasn't been around forever. So, you know, so you, you would basically have to do phone calls or, or things like that before the video element, the Zoom element. So I think all of us kind of admired how much Sekou cared for his kids. He was there for his kids. He sacrificed for his kids and his wife. And I just think that was admirable because our field, you've got to have a special person in your life to understand, hey, I need to be gone for two weeks to the finals. They've got to understand that this is important to you. This is your job. Uh, you're not... Eating hot dogs and popcorn in the press boxes, watching the games like you're working. You're on deadline. You're writing. Like these are things that you know. It takes a special person to understand that and help. Sometimes be there with the kids when he's on the road. But I always thought we all admired Sekou for ha- having three kids and a wife and being able to cultivate that. Because when the road demands that you be there, or you're covering a beat where you're gone ten days in five cities in ten days or you're missing Valentine's Day, or, you know, your team plays on Christmas, you know, things like that, you know. I think a lot of us admired Sekou for being able to manage that, you know, being able to raise teenage kids and and kids in college, but also doing his job greatly, living in different cities, that's not easy. And that's very, that was very admirable.
0: For sure. John or Gary, do you have any last words that you like to leave the NBA Hangtime audience with about Sekou?
1: Um, I'll say this, and I sort of alluded to this in his in a, in a little video I did for his memorial service. I just, you know, with all the tributes that came across for him after Sekou passed, you just realize how many friendships he had, how many people he mentored, how many of us that, you know, thought of him as a brother. And so I think of all those friendships, all those people he mentored, all that love that he spread because he just, that's all he did. And I just think, I mean, what an incredible, um, legacy. I mean, he is going to live on forever because of how much he influenced the rest of us. Like, and, and I think that's just an incredible, like I'm made it my vow to be more like Seku going forward. Like, you know, like I want to be, I'll never get there. You know, I'm never going to live up to that, so that's standard, but I'm going to try. And I think of all the people that he helped get jobs, all the people that he helped guide along uh, their career path, and then all the friends that, that he was so warm with. I think of him like as a son, because there was like all these people orbiting around him and he kept us all warm. Uh, like I said, I think all that stuff, it's just an incredible, incredible legacy that will continue on even though he's no longer with us.
2: Yeah, I think uh, his life was an incredible journey. Unfortunately, it ended prematurely, um, but he got so much done on this earth. And I think that that's what we can aspire to be, to be, to touch that many people, to to have an influence on that many lives, to have a great, you know, be a great family man, be good with friends. Like we all kind of want to, we want to be that person, right? We want to, well, I want to be, you know, call people more often. I want to be more loving. I want to, you know, I want to be good to my family. I want to call people that I haven't talked to. I want to connect with the friends from my friends from college. Like you want to do that. You have all the right intentions and then it just, you fall short. And so every new year you make this resolution. Okay. I'm going to reach out to my family more and reach out to my friends and I'm going to check in on everybody. And I think this will teach us hopefully that we need to be better at that. Cause that's, what Sekou would want, and that's what he did. It's hurtful to lose just a good friend and a guy who, you know, was just such a funny, popular guy, but you always kind of take those memories and you cherish them and you try to just be better to the friends that you have here and be more open and, like John said, be more like Sekou. What would he want you to do? The patience, like you said, dealing with those guys, the fans in the street and you can sometimes big time people. You can kind of be caught up in your own life and your own existence, but he wasn't like that. And I think we can all take that lesson and move forward with it. And he can still be with us. You know, he's still going to be on our shoulder, you know, and, and I just, I said, I remember those times in the bubble and just me, Mark Spears, Chris Haynes, and, you know, Morgan Mitchell just having fun and hanging out and, and just talk. And we all grew closer because of that. And I, I'll, cherish those moments because it was special and it was, I just had no idea. I knew Sekou and we were here together here and there, but to be with him on a daily basis, you know, see the man every day was just fun. I mean, it was just all out fun. It was a rare opportunity. I'm glad I got a chance to experience it.
1: There's nobody you wanted to, you would want to hang out with and BS with more. There's a great picture I, I tweeted out after he passed of him and Kemba Walker. I think it's the 2019 sort of the, the training camp leading up to the uh, to the World Cup. And Sekou's just sitting there with his arms folded in a chair next to Kemba. He's looking away, but Kemba is like cracking up laughing. And it's like the perfect picture of Sekou. He's there working, but he doesn't have his recorder out. He's not really working. He's, you know, making friends, basically. Like I said, there's nobody else you'd rather hang out with and just BS with. And he was so good with that. And he was such a good friend.
0: Gary and John I want to thank you for coming on the Hang Time Podcast and sharing some funny memories and good memories that you had with our guy and brother Sekou. If you'd like to make a donation to the Sekou Smith Journalism Award Scholarship at Jackson State University, visit www.jsu.ms.edu/scholarships. That's www.jsu.ms.edu/scholarships. Click Give on the top navigation bar and be sure to select the Seiku Smith Journalism Award from the Choose a Current Youth Scholarship menu. Welcome in everybody to a special edition of the NBA Hangtime Podcast, where we are remembering our dear brother, Seiku Smith. Joining us today is Sean Powell and David Aldridge. I want to thank you guys for being here today. Of course, of course. First question. Can both of you describe the first time you met Sekou and what that interaction was like? I'm guessing he was covering the
3: Pacers then. So late 90s, early 2000s would be my guess. The Pacers were good in the 90s, so we saw them a lot. But we knew their beat writers very well. And so to see a young brother all of a sudden being the Pacers beat writer was something that got your attention. Certainly got mine. And it was great to see. And, you know, Sekou was exactly the same way, just real gregarious, real outgoing, um, real easy to talk to. So, yeah, I think that was probably it.
4: Yeah, I would have to say also when he was with Indiana, and actually I ran into him not long after the Malice of the Palace, which Sekou was covering the Pacers then. Right. And he was at court side. I don't think he got hit with any debris, though. <laughs> uh, so that's good news. But, of course, I had a million questions for him yeah. because um, – you know he was there, and you know he had to file the story. I wonder what that was like because you're all frazzled. you know I remember when I covered the Tyson Holyfield bite fight, and then when Tyson uh bit off Holyfield's ear, I mean my jaw was on the floor for like thirty minutes, and I'm on deadline, so I'm sure Sekou experienced you know a lot of the same shock and feelings and and then the reality that hey, I gotta somehow you know, make sense of this in what, about 45 minutes and with everything going on. And I had, you know, I just wanted to, you know, ask him about that process. And he, you know, he just had a vivid memory of what that was like. It shows what kind of journalist he was, because he was able to put all that in perspective and do it in a very informative way. So to give the readers exactly what happened, you know, a point blank view of what was, you know, a a very interesting, to say the least, day in NBA history, and I think that our relationship kind of expanded once, you know, he and I both joined NBA.com. I think it was the same year, and it probably was within a few months apart. So I remembered him just running into him uh, in Indiana that day and everything, and just, you know,
0: I think that's when the bond pretty much started. Sean, you mentioned Sekou's writing style and the way he was able to capture those moments like you were actually there. Was there anything that you noticed about his writing style that kind of stuck with you as a writer, or as a reporter that was kind of like, oh man, like I love the way Sekou told the story here?
3: I mean, for me, it was just the honesty with what she wrote, you know, like he didn't pull punches and there's a difference between being honest and, and kind of being cynical and and, and trying to you know, get clicks and stuff like that. There was an honesty in his writing to me, which was like, he's the guy that gets it. Like he's not trying to draw attention to himself. You know, some people do that. They say things they know that are provocative, that are going to be controversial because they know it will draw attention to themselves. But that wasn't Sekou. What Sekou was doing was really telling you the honest, unvarnished truth about the teams he was covering, you know, and um, that, that's something that beat writers, old beat writers like like Sean and I appreciate, because you have to tell the truth. And sometimes the truth is uncomfortable, but you have to tell the
4: truth as you see it. And he, and he did. Yeah, you know, I'd like to piggyback off what David just said. Sekou really came along during a time when the media what started to shift away from so-called traditional journalism to internet. Uh, all of a sudden, the so-called... Journalism rules became a little bit softened or lessened. In other words, people would go with rumors, innuendo, uh, never double checked anything. And if they made a mistake, oh, well, you know, we'll get it right the next time, you know, (laughs) which was... I mean, that's insane when you think about it. But Sekou brought a lot of the old school sensibilities to new school journalism. And I thought that was very refreshing. I know he had a good relationship, for example, with uh, Josh Smith when Josh Smith played for the Hawks. But Josh was Josh, you know. (laughs) Sometimes, you know, he would go crazy. And Sekou wouldn't ignore that. There's a way to be critical and be fair. There's a way to be critical without being malicious. And I think Sekou really straddled that line perfectly. And I think that that's a good reason why he had such respect among the players and coaches, uh, because he was fair. You know, a lot of you got a lot of, as David said, you have cheap shot artists out there, people just saying things for facts so they can blow up their own image and, and their and their credibility and all those sorts of things. But Sekou was true to the profession and he was true to the people he covered. And I think that that's very important to stress.
0: Yeah. One of the things we've been hearing about from a lot of the people we've had on the show is Seiku's impact, and because of his writing style, and because of his honesty. Do you think that that was what made people gravitate towards him, just because he had you know, that laugh and that he was fair and stuff like that, people knew that he wasn't gonna be malicious towards them in his articles? like Sean said, I think that's why he was respected around the league
3: is, you know, whatever the sport is. And, you know, I've covered a bunch of sports. Sean's covered a bunch of sports too. The players know when they mess up. They know before you do, you know, believe me, they know before and they know when they messed up, when you don't know they messed up. I never had a player take it, you know, offense with something I wrote. If it was the truth, you know what I mean? Like they know, when they have not played as well as they could play. And I think that's what, you know, what, what Seku did was say that in a way where he wasn't questioning the guy's motives or the guy's character or the work ethic and all these things that kind of get conflated when you say someone had a bad day. Players respected that um, because he wasn't calling them out of their name or, you know, casting untrue or, or as like Sean said, you know, rumors that were just out there that nobody bothered to check or anything like that. He would just say the guy played bad or the the team's playing bad. And here's why I think that is. And again, I think most people, most athletes, most players, coaches, teams respect that if you're honest. I mean, if you come at it from an honest place, and I think he always came at it from an honest place.
4: Yeah, and I think, you know, we're sitting here talking about criticism. To be honest with you, um, there are actually, contrary to maybe the, the belief in the public, there are actually very small opportunities for us to be critical. Mm-hmm. I mean, most NBA players and most athletes in general are good people. They're professionals. They work hard. They own up to their mistakes and everything. So, you know, um, I think I think the one thing that endeared Sekou to a lot of people is, uh, in, inside the locker room and outside the locker room was just a personality. You know, he was like, you know, always friendly. You know, it's like the guy never had a bad day. And if he had a bad day, he wasn't going to throw that in your face. Uh, he was going to conduct himself the same way uh, no matter the situation. The other thing is with Sekou is – Um, He never big timed anybody. He always found the time to talk to emerging journalists, to students. Morehouse would every season they would bring a bunch of students to uh, cover the Atlanta Hawks as training for journalism students there. And Sekou always took the time to speak with them. Uh, And, you know, some of them looked at, oh, my God, this Sekou Smith. He's on NBA TV. But to be honest with you, he disarmed them. And said, hey, dude, I was walking in your shoes and you can be better than me and basically uh, told them how they can do that. So that's why he was able to, I would say, navigate through so many different situations, people, levels and things like that, because he was seku, the same guy, you know, with the, no matter the, the company that he kept. He was Seiku, and you were going to walk away from
0: him with a very positive impression of him. Can either you share some of your funniest moments or memories with Seiku over the years? Just going out to you know eat with him—that was that was always an
3: adventure. Um, whether it was during the playoffs or you know after you know after a shift doing NBA TV. Um, he and Arthur Tricia were very close friends, used to take me out. We would go out and get get barbecue somewhere, some one of their spots in town. And it was just great, just hanging out with them, just listening to the stories. You know, they had hawk stories all day long, you know, so I always enjoyed listening to their hawk stories and just, you know, to me, it's the meals. I know some guys have more meals with him than I did, but I remember having several meals with him and just having a great time. Listening to him talk about Joe Johnson and and <laughs> the family <laughs> that he had to, that he had and got some of the adventures that they had together um, and just the just covering those really forgotten Hawks teams that were really quite good but just couldn't quite get over the hump um, under Mike Woodson so that's what I remember
2: more than anything.
4: Yeah, obviously the uh, the dinners and everything were great but there would, there would be a couple of occasions where seku and I would uh, cover the same event, like, you know, say, the Western Playoff Series, Western Conference or whatever. <clears throat> and sometimes, you know, because there'd be so many media people there, uh, they would stagger us our seats. There would be one good seat and one not-so-good seat <laughs> for NBA. So say and I would have a contest to see who would get the good seat. And so that would mean you would have to get to the game early. Right. So, you know, once I would start getting to the game early and then one time I said, I'm going to get him this time. I got to the game like four hours before the game. Unbeknownst to me, Sekud had gotten an even better seat than the one I ended up with. So <laughs> <laughs> and he made sure to rub that in and everything. I'm sifting through my memory. And i got to say, I mean, look, every I would probably say 98 percent of the people I come across in the journalism business, Are fantastic. I mean, don't you know, don't get it twisted. Uh, But with Sekou, I, I just there's always been a great day at practice, on the phone with him, covering events for him. Didn't have an ego. Hey, Sean, what kind of angle do you want to explore? I'll go a different way. Uh, which is the way I kind of operate whenever I have co-workers too. So you had two guys with no egos basically handing off to each other. That became complicated. But uh, he was just a pleasure to work with. Just an absolute joy because he just would let you do what you wanted to do, explore the angle that made your story look great, and he would always have another path in mind. And just just, just an outstanding co-worker, guy to be around, guy to go out to eat with, guy to cover events with. He just made your professional life just that much less complicated. And he was a wonderful curmudgeon. And I say that I say that <laughs> with great joy and
3: affection. Um, he could be a curmudgeon. And I love that side of him when he would just be curmudgeonly. Because like I said, it's hard to be curmudgeonly and lovable. And he managed to do it
0: you have any last words that you want to leave the NBA fans with about Sekou's impact on you personally or just about Sekou overall as a person? He very easily could have been
3: an even bigger personality star, whatever you want to call it, covering the NBA because he talked to everybody and everybody talked to him and they confided in him and they told him stuff. And that's all this business is, is people tell you stuff and you check it out and you see if it's true. That's really all we do. And if he had chosen that path, he could have been, you know, a big time insider, breaking news type of guy. Um, but I've always said, I, I think Seku valued the relationship more than he valued the scoop. And it's rare in our business to find people like that because everybody has some kind of ego. There is value in being considered, you know, Wired in or whatever you want to call it. And if you take that path, you can become very famous and very rich. And I think Sekou could have done that, and he made the decision, the conscious decision not to. I think he was comfortable being who he was and being the type of reporter he was that was respected by everybody. Um, and I had so much respect for him because of that choice, um, because it's easy to get seduced. Um and he never did. And like Sean said, he was never, he was the same person every time you saw him. He was never different. Um, he was never bigger than you, or bigger than the moment, or bigger than someone else who who wanted his advice about something. Um, and I always respected that about him um very much um, that he was a true professional an absolute professional journalist in every sense of the word.
4: Yeah, I'd like to approach this from the angle of Black journalists. I'd like to say that there were layers, because there aren't that many of us in this business, particularly at the top. Uh, The people who came before me, who inspired me, guys like Mike Wilbon, Ralph Wiley, um, David Dupree, uh, Brian Burwell and I was in the next phase with David Aldridge, Jay Adonde, and maybe a few others. And Seku was in the following phase uh, with uh, you know, Mark Spears, Gary Washburn, and a number of others uh, from not just the NBA but other sports. And I'd like to think that the progression got better, or at least made the attempt to get better. Look, it's hard to top guys like Will Bonner, Rob Wiley, and things like that. David and I, of course, we try our our hardest. (laughs) But I'd like to think that the progression, you know, we pay it forward to them, to the next phase. Uh, And I think Sekou carried that mantle very well. He uh, took the ball and ran with it, made the most of his career. Like David Aldridge said, you know, you can you know, try to push it to the next phase, uh, make those sacrifices along the way. But you have to find your own comfort zone, whatever that might be, and be true to yourself and true to your talent and things like that. So I'd like to think that Sekou made the next wave of Black journalists proud. And just keeping it into just that context, I would probably say, uh, you know, the legacy he left behind and what he tried to do and what he accomplished was uh, very representative of the Black journalists that followed the group, myself, David Aldridge, and the other people that I mentioned.
0: David and Sean, I want to thank you so much for coming on the NBA Hangtime podcast to share your thoughts about Sekou and his lasting impact with you and around the league and around the whole NBA world. So I want to thank you guys both for joining. We'll talk to you soon. My pleasure. Thank you. If you'd like to make a donation to the Sekou Smith Journalism Award Scholarship at Jackson State University, visit www.jsums.edu backslash scholarships. That's www.jsums.edu backslash scholarships. Click give on the top navigation bar and be sure to select the Sekou Smith Journalism Award from the Choose a Current Use Scholarship menu.
4: Due to the outpouring of love from the NBA community, we wanted to give Sekou's friends from around the league an opportunity to share a memory, story, or kind
5: word. Hi, this is Jay Adande, Director of Sports Journalism at the Dill School of Journalism, Northwest University, longtime NBA journalist, friend of Sekou Smith, and I just wanted to tell a couple stories about Sekou, uh, one personal, one about the journalist that he is, um, the personal one, when a member of the NBA family uh, was really sick uh, facing, really facing the end, and Sekou was just so adamant that we all stayed aware. I know he reached out to me and several other folks just keeping us up to date on all the ups and the downs um, in this person's recovery process and, and journey back to health, and he made it all the way back. And I'm sure part of the reason he made it back was the support of Sekou and how much support that Sekou was able to round up and generate and all the well wishes that were sent his way. And uh, just an incredible effort for a friend. It showed the type of friend that Sekou was. And the type of journalist he was, um, my favorite Sekou Smith coverage came when he was on the RV. I know he was on that Hangtown bus. He was famous for that. But before that, he was on a luxury RV, the Dominique Wilkins, the Atlanta Hawks great, uh, had when he drove up to the Hall of Fame induction when he was going to be introduced to the Hall of Fame and he invited Seiku with him. And Seiku kept posting from the road and corresponding and filling us in on and telling us some great stories from the journey and uh, really looking back over Dominic's career. So, really, in my mind, two Hall of Famers on that bus Dominic Wilkins and Seiku
6: Smith. Uh, we're going to miss him. No one likes Seiku. Hello, this is Steve Smith. Just wanted to. Talk about my good friend, Sekou Smith, who I've been knowing over 20 years. Uh, I love for the state of Michigan. Uh, I love for basketball. And then just for me, how much I learned from Sekou as a human being, one of the best human beings I've met in my entire life. We got a chance to debate. We got a chance to talk about our families. His love for his family was something that was so infectious. His love of the game of basketball, his imprint he had on it. From I watched him from his days of writing until it all led up into him being on TV as an analyst. I've always joked with him and everybody around him. I said, was like a guy who had a 10-day because he loved the game so much. His imprint was all over the game. And when he spoke, you felt like he played the game of basketball. So I just appreciate all his knowledge, all his wisdom his love for Jackson State. The only thing we disagreed on was Michigan and Michigan State. And we had some unbelievable debates, but definitely gonna miss my guy. A love for everybody to understand that is, he will live on forever because how he treated people. And that's all I wanted to say about my guy Sekou. Love you, and you'll never hear me say this too much, but my guy gets me to say this, go blue.
1: There are people in this life that really make the world feel full and make you feel welcome. And it's been eerie going into the studio, not just because of COVID protocols and the studio being empty, but because I can't hear Seku And his energy and his laughter was something that I regretfully say that I took for granted because it was so much a part of our culture and his energy, his enthusiasm, his love for the game and people and his... Willingness to be so selfless and never ever complain, and his work ethic is something that I will never forget. And every day, I will try to be a better person and bring light to a room like he did. If I could go back and cherish every single moment, he was smiling and laughing and giggling and bringing his spirit to the team. I would. I love you, Seku.
7: Hi, this is Sam Mitchell. Leave the message about my dear friend Seku Smith. I was fortunate enough to get to know Seku at NBA TV. And I was always amazed at the ease in which he moved in and out of the building, the way he dealt with people, the way people gravitated toward him and the things he said and his views. He just has such a gentle way of getting his point across, but he got his point across, we're going to miss you Seku. We love you. We know you're going way too early. This coronavirus has stripped us of a lot of loved ones and a lot of citizens. And, man, my heart goes out to your family, to your children, to your mom and dad, to you. Uh, you will be missed. You will not be forgotten. And just every time I think about that MVP ladder, Sekou, I think about you because you had it dead to rise. You know, your views on who was MVP and it was trending and in the top five, it was always spot on. So rest in peace, my friend. Save a spot up there for the good Lord for me. Put in the good word for me because I'm going to need it. We love you. We're going to miss you. And you will not be forgotten.